this morning if you are a guest. We're grateful for every guest who walks through that door. Um, This church exists. This church was planted about 25 years ago, and this church exists because we want to see a growing number of people experience and enjoy Jesus Christ. And in fact, we're part of a, a network of churches called Sojourn Network that plants churches in different parts of the, of the country. And uh, we right now have the opportunity to be involved through that partnership with planting churches in Atlanta and Denver and uh, Indiana and Ohio. And uh, it's an area where we feel like God is calling us forward as a local church. So, so being able to be together this morning and having our guests join us as well is, is part of that experience, and we, we, we thank God for you. So let me just fill you in a little bit about what we're doing as a local church. We have, over the past seven or eight weeks, been in a series that has been dedicated to understanding a new statement of faith that the church is, is moving towards. So the title of the series is Truth Matters, and the statement of faith is the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith. It's been a statement of faith that's been used, accepted, enjoyed, and, uh, and established in churches throughout this country and in, in other parts of the world as well. <clears throat> so we've been going now through each article because we realize it's, it's not enough to just simply announce a statement of faith. We really want the people of the church to understand it, to, to understand the content and the substance behind what the statement of faith professes, so that in becoming a part of, of Four Oaks, you know what you're becoming a part of, you know what we believe. And so we've been going through each article, and you guys have been doing, by the way, a great job of, of following this along, of asking great questions. We're just so, we're so proud of the, our church and the way that the, the church is engaging the material, so thank you for, for doing that. And we're delivered this morning to article number 7. So you can open up your Bibles to John chapter 1, but I'm going to begin by reading to you from article 7, which is on the redemption of Christ. And this is how it begins. We believe that moved by love and in obedience to his Father, the eternal Son became human, the Word became flesh, fully God and fully human being, one person in two natures. The man Jesus, the promised Messiah of Israel, was conceived through the miraculous agency of the Holy Spirit and was born of the Virgin Mary. He perfectly obeyed his heavenly Father lived a sinless life, performed miraculous signs, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead on the third day, and ascended into heaven. As the mediatorial king, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, exercising in heaven and on earth all of God's sovereignty, and is our high priest and righteous advocate. We believe that by his incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus Christ acted as our representative and substitute. He did this so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, he canceled sin, propitiated God, 
and by bearing the full penalty of our sins, reconcile to God all those who believe. By his resurrection, Christ Jesus was vindicated by his Father, broke the power of death, and defeated Satan, who once had power over it, and brought everlasting life to all his people. By his ascension, he has, a forever exalt, he has been forever exalted as Lord and has prepared a place for us to be with him. We believe that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Because God chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, no human being can ever boast before him. Christ Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Now this statement covers the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and mediation of Jesus Christ. But recently, we have had two different series, the book of Acts and then the Beyond the Shadowland series, where we've actually talked about the ascension and the mediation of Christ. So we're going to confine our examination to that portion of the statement that we haven't covered at all in a while. So a good passage to turn to to establish this, because it's not enough to just affirm a statement of faith. It's not enough to simply believe it. We've got to understand where, we, where is it drawn from Scripture? What is the source? What is the authority behind what we're professing that we believe? So let's go to John chapter 1, and I'm going to read verse 14 of John chapter 1, and we'll look at some other verses as well, but let's start here. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the series is Truth Matters. The title for this morning's message is Truth Matters, God Saving. God Saving. So let's pray together. Lord, we we thank you for, for statements of faith to establish what orthodoxy represents. But we thank you all the more for your word. And Lord, we pray that you would help us now as we go to study your word. We realize that there is nothing relevant, there is nothing significant, there is nothing permanent that can take place this morning unless you, by your Holy Spirit, grant illumination. So be with us and grant us that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say because it will tell you something about why this article is so important. In fact, it will tell you something about why this passage that we just read is so important as well. And that is that what comes to your mind when you think about Jesus reveals how well you really know him. Let me say that again. What comes to your mind when you think about Jesus reveals how well you really know him. 
And the intent of this article from the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith, in fact, the intent of the entire New Testament, is that we might know Christ accurately. In fact, it's that we might know Christ accurately, that we might enjoy Christ personally and experience Christ personally. And this is a very timely thing to be studying, and this is a very timely article to be affirming because it's becoming more and more popular in the day in which we live to want to experience Christ personally without knowing him accurately. Earlier this month, the Reverend Bob Shore Goss, he's a pastor in Southern California, determined from his study of the New Testament that Jesus was gay. And so he's made that announcement. He's established his position. George Barna, in a recent report, indicated that the vast majority of Americans believed that Jesus lived, but that he was neither sinless nor divine. Mormons, of course, believe that Jesus was divine, but he was also created by God. Muslims, of course, believe that Jesus was not divine, but he was born of a virgin. So you have a gay Jesus, you have a human Jesus who's not divine, you have a divine Jesus who's been created by God, and you have a prophet Jesus who was born of a virgin, which makes it pretty clear that you can pretty much get any brand of Jesus you want in the United States. And this sampling illustrates the very reason why we need to have an article like this. Because what comes to your mind when you think about Jesus reveals whether you, whether I, whether we really know him and know who he is. So it's very, very critical that we understand what's behind a statement of faith. In fact, a critical purpose of a statement of faith is to ensure that what comes to our mind when we think about Jesus is based upon biblical realities and drawn from biblical texts. And so, the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith offers us Article 7. And Article 7 features the important components of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as I mentioned earlier, we've covered some of them already, so we're going to confine it this morning to just talking about two of the most prominent features within this article. So two critical components at the heart of the article. One is Jesus as God-man, Jesus as God-man, and second is Jesus as representative substitute. Let's go back to the first one, Jesus as God-man. This is the way the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith begins, Article 7 begins. It says, quote, We believe that moved by love and in obedience to his Father, the eternal Son became human. The Word became flesh, fully God and fully human being, one person in two natures. Or to use the words of the Apostle John, and the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, even as we wade into the Gospel of John and begin to draw from chapter 1 of John, it's very important that we really go back to the very beginning, to the first words in the first chapter of John, to begin where this whole thing started. So just for a second, look at chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. There the Word appears in John. The Word, of course, is Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, not anything was made. That was made, was made. In him, verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of all men. So John is writing from Ephesus. John is seeking to write to Jews and Gentiles, and he's seeking to, to relay to them a body of information because he wants them to know Jesus Christ. He wants them to know who he is. He's got his own Christology that he wants to convey to them. He wants them to know the one who he walked with, who he laughed with, whose, whose breast he rested his head on the Last Supper. And so he comes right out of the gate saying something that in his mind is absolutely essential to understanding who this Jesus really was. He says, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was God. He was God in the beginning. He goes on to say, in him all things are made, and through him we we receive life. So he wants them to know right away that the one who came to earth was not just a a top-ranking angel. He wasn't just one god from the pantheon of Greek gods that were believed back then. He was God. He was the creator. And then in verse 14, he takes this, this astounding twist. He says, and that word who was God, that word who was the creator, that word in whom we have life, he became flesh and he dwelt among us. That God who was the creator stuffed himself into flesh and dropped into the same world that you and I inhabit and he became one of us. I mean, think about what John is saying. Think about what the readers are experiencing when they first read this. They're learning that the word of God says that God actually became part of the story that he's writing for them. That God is not only the storyteller, but he's now a main character in the story. That the author of the story wrote himself into the story, wrote himself into the story as a human character. Kim and I were flipping through channels this past week in front of the TV and came across an M. Night, however you pronounce his last name, movie. You know, I'm talking about Shamalian or Shamalama. I don't even know how you pronounce his last name. Great, great producer, great director. But one of his signature features in the movies that he makes is to do a cameo. So if you ever see, you know, Lady in the Water or Signs or Sixth Sense or Unbreakable, he's always in there. In other words, the guy who created the movie, the guy who wrote the script, writes himself in. For just a very small part, he, he writes himself in. The author of the screenplay writes himself into the script. And for M. Night, it's always just a very small small part, a very small cameo, which is probably a great mercy to us all because he might be a great director, but not so good on the acting front. But the point is that it's always a very small part. See, for God, it was not a small part. For God, it wasn't a bit part in this major production. He became the main character in the story. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and, the, and that Word who was God broke into the human story. 
He broke into the human story, became a main character in history. When Larry King was once asked, hey, if you could interview anybody throughout history, who would you choose? And he said, without blinking, he said, oh, I'd choose Jesus Christ. Somebody said, well, why him? And he said, I would ask him if he was really born of a virgin. Because he knew if the answer then was yes, then the word indeed did become flesh. Then God indeed did become man and dwelt among us. So this is where John starts. That there is this God-man. God became man. And if you're asking why, and you're wondering why, why did he do it? Well, that's where I'd like to go back to the first six words of the article itself, where it says, we believe that moved by love. Moved by love. Let's not rush on beyond that real quick. Let's just, let's just soak in that for a second. Moved by love. See, Jesus didn't come to earth because he was building an election base and it was an election year. That wasn't what was going on. He was moved by love. He wasn't the new kid in town, moving to neighborhood earth, needed some friends. No, he was moved by love. Remember, this is, this is one who had the other members of the Trinity as, as part of who he was in fellowship with. That, that was his small group, other members of the Trinity. Imagine that small group, always a good meeting, never interrupting each other, Insights, always brilliant, always spot on. Nobody ever misses it because of his love. See, love for God meant that he was going to move toward us in Jesus. He was going to take initiative. He was going to create relationship with us even when we were enemies. That's part of what John is getting at here. When When it says in John 1 that, When he uses that word, he dwelt among us. That word dwelt literally means set up a tent. Sometimes it's translated tabernacled. Christ, God tabernacled among us in Christ. Remember remember how that worked in the Old Testament? You know, sin, because of the Garden of Eden, sin had separated us from God, had broken the relationship that Adam and Eve, and consequently we had with God. The communion was broken. And so in the Old Testament, God sets up this this tabernacle where in the middle of the tabernacle, a tent was pitched and it was in the midst of the people. It was symbolizing, it was signifying that God was in the midst of his people. God was tabernacling. His presence was there among his people. But that tabernacle was only ever temporary. And so what John 1 announces is that God became flesh to set up his tent among us once again, to tabernacle among us, to be with us, to be right in the middle with us. Not to be distant. Jesus didn't arrive with an entourage that was insulating him, that you really couldn't get to him because there are so many people in orbit around him. He didn't move into a high rise where the security guy has to buzz you in order to get you in so you can get near Jesus. Jesus pitched his tent among sinners. He he planted God's flag right in the middle of God's people. 
you know, in the Friday news conference, they talked all about how the Confederate flag was being lowered in South Carolina in front of the, in front of the, uh, the Capitol because there was belief that the Confederate flag fragmented people. It divided people. Well, Jesus pitches his tent among his people and plants his flag that unites the people of God. In other words, the fellowship that we once lost was found. It rekindled the connection and the fellowship. And this is part of what was taking place with Jesus coming, as we read on. It says in, let's skip down to verse 18. This is part of what was going on. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. Jesus was the only God who was at the Father's side, of course, along with the Spirit. He has made Him known. The one who was along at the Father's side also made the Father known. The Greek word there for made known, exegeomai, it literally means to exegete. It's where we get the word exegete. So think about what's being said here. Just ponder this for a second. That, that Jesus exegeted God for us. Jesus unpacked God. He interpreted God. He made God known. So Jesus came not only to embody God, not only to convey God to us, to give us a sense of who God was and what God was all about, but he also came to exegete the heart of God, to make God known, to unpack God's love, to give us a sense you know, people say, well, why, why was there the fall to begin with? Had there not been the fall, we would have never had a sense for what the love of God really was. Because it was in the fall and at the cross and through the resurrection that the love of God was truly embodied. And we began to get a sense, God loves us so much that even when we're enemies, he'll reach out to us, come after us, take initiative, pull us to himself. What a love! But we wouldn't understand it. We wouldn't see it apart from the cross. So... Jesus became God's self-disclosure. God opening up himself to us. And think about that. Opening up himself to us while we hated him. By the way, part of the reason we open up our hearts to one another and we encourage community It's not simply like that that's a good relational tactic. You know, it really helps to build relationships and to deepen friendships when you open up to each other. Well, that's true, but that's not the first and primary reason we do it. You know, we open up to one another because when we gaze upon the gospel, when we see Jesus Christ, when we begin to understand God, we recognize in Christ that God came and dwelt among us and he opened up God to us. He made God known. So in the same way, when we're in the community of God's people, we're called upon to make ourselves known, to open up our hearts. Scripture says, confess sin to one another. When I was at fellowship group this past week, and we're sitting around, and, and we're struggling people. You know, we have challenges. We're talking about certain challenges with the kids and certain things we've walked through. And, and, but we're doing that not because it first satisfies an emotional need, not even because it's first that man should not live, or, or, or man should not live alone, but there needs to be other people around them. And we're not sitting around judging other people who aren't opening up. We, we have to recognize that the claim is upon each of us to, to be made known, to have our own self-disclosure in the same way when we gaze upon God in the gospel and we see Jesus, he made God known. So when we gaze at God, 
when we gaze at the Savior, we see God's self-disclosure, God making, Jesus making God known. And that's part of what He did as the God-man. So, Jesus as God-man is the first point, I think, that the article, a large portion of the article covers, and it's what I wanted to cover with you, but it's only the first, because there's a second as well. And that is Jesus as representative substitute. Representative substitute. Now, to cover this, to cover this point, we're actually going to need to go into a speed round with uh, Bible passages. But let me first point you to a section of the article. Let me just give you the slice of the article which, uh, that, that I'm looking at here, which, which reads this way. <clears throat> we believe that by his incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus Christ acted as our representative and substitute. Now, here's where I want to go with this. The, the gospel is not simply a story of God becoming man and just muscling through the worst the world could throw at him. You know, like, like, like Jesus saying, you know, I'm going to go to earth and I'm going to serve and suffer, and in doing so, I'm going to show them how they're supposed to live before each other. I'm going to go to earth and I'm going to serve them, I'm going to suffer, and in doing that, I'm just going to be a great example so that they can follow me in my footsteps. Because other religions have, have great examples too. I mean, the Jews have Moses and Abraham. Islam has Muhammad. Buddhism has, has Dalai Lama, who seems like a pretty righteous guy and has written books on the bestseller list, New York Times. See, my point is that other folks or other religions have folks who can help man and men and women find their place in the world. Only Christianity teaches that someone else took our place in the world. Big difference. Other religions throughout the world all find, all give us somebody that we can follow as an example to help us find our place in the world. Only Christianity teaches that someone else took our place. Someone else represented us. Someone else substituted themselves for us. That's a distinction in Christianity. So you ask, well, you know, how did that happen? How did he take our place? I've got three subpoints I want to cover with you under this Jesus as representative substitute. How did he take our place? Here's point one. He represented us with his obedient life. He represented us with his obedient life. See, Adam was far more than just the first created being. Adam became our representative head. He was the representative head over all men and women, which meant if Adam succeeded in the Garden of Eden, we would have succeeded in the Garden of Eden. But Adam failed. But he was. He was there, not simply for himself, not simply representing his family, but representing all of us. It's kind of like watching the Olympics, but not really. Um, but maybe a little bit. It's kind of like watching the Olympics when your country is competing. And you feel in that moment like, like they are repping you. I mean, they're there, but you're there. And as they're performing or they're competing, their successes become your triumphs 
and their defeats become your failures because you feel it, because there's a sense where you feel like they're representing you. In the garden, Adam represented us all, and the result is defined in a very sad way in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all then sinned. In other words, Adam failed the test. I mean, God only had one rule. He basically put him in the garden and said, this garden is here for you to enjoy. Go enjoy your wife. Enjoy the garden. There's many things here that can bless you. Delight yourself. Go and do all the things that are in your heart to do, except there's a tree in the middle of the garden. Don't touch it. Don't go near it. Don't eat from it. That's the only thing. But when they saw that the tree was desirable and Satan enticed them, they caved. In other words, man neglected good. Men and women chose evil. But, as we learned the last time that we we talked about this, that I was here at least, the beauty of that story is that God immediately promised, even in the curse, another representative who would come. Not like Adam. A different representative. The seed of the woman. The seed of Eve who would come and crush the head of the serpent. And so then, as the story unfolds and the years begin to come, Christ ultimately appears as the last Adam. Paul calls him the second man in 1 Corinthians 15. Sinclair Ferguson calls him Adam in reverse. Adam in reverse. And and the second Adam comes with a specific plan. It's set up. He's got to achieve it in order for this whole thing to work. He must live a life of perfect, sustained obedience. He must live a life of perfect, sustained obedience in an earthly body so that he might succeed where Adam failed. See, that's part of the reason why Jesus was tempted so early on in his ministry. It was like Eden part two. It was Adam the sequel. And he was tempted in the same ways that Adam was tempted. Jesus was tempted in Matthew chapter 4, in the same ways that Adam and Eve were tempted in Genesis chapter 3, but Jesus succeeded. In fact, it says in Hebrews chapter 4 that Christ was, quote, tempted in every respect, yet without sin. So he arrives, Jesus arrives, he dwelt among us, but he came with a certain mission. He came to have to reverse the effects of what took place in Eden. He arrived as the last Adam, and he walked in his place, and he denied himself. Where Adam indulged himself, Jesus denied himself. Where Adam disobeyed God, Jesus obeyed God. Where Adam threw off the law, Jesus embraced the law. Where Adam indulged the temptations of the enemy, Jesus resisted the temptations of the enemy. And so, he is set up as the last Adam, He succeeds where Adam failed. And so he arrives at the cross, not just as the Son of Man, not just as the Son of God, but as a new representative of man, poised for the climax of the next part of the drama, which leads us to the second sub-point under Jesus as representative substitute, which is that Jesus 
represented for us, was represented for us in a sinner's death. So, he was first represented for us in an obedient life, and then he represented, or let's say substituted, he, subs, he was substituted for us in a sinner's death. Listen, Adam's failure was not just a bad day at the office. You know, this, this wasn't one of those, well, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, kind of thing. That wasn't like that at all. The fall was calamitous. It was monumental. It was climactic in creation because those that once had fellowship with God, those were whom God would walk within the garden in the cool of the day and they would enjoy unrestricted access, became enemies of God. They went under the curse of the law. Their soul at one point being pure was now radically corrupt. Their nature became slaves to sin. And that wasn't even the worst part. The worst part was that that then triggered the natural and understandable and necessary response from a holy and just being who was creator that triggered the wrath of a holy God. That's why in Romans chapter 1 it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. When, when righteousness meets unrighteousness, there is only one response that can take place when it comes from a holy and pure being, and that is wrath. So it triggered the wrath of God. And so for the first time in history, as a result of Genesis chapter 3, creation had this divine dilemma. For God to overlook or ignore sin. Actually, let me back up a little bit. For a holy God who advertises himself as righteous and holy and pure in all things, for him to overlook or ignore sin would be a divine injustice and render him unjust. It would render him less than God. I mean, think about it just in your own mind. What, what judge do you feel would be just if they had criminals coming before them in court or or, or, or somebody who had done a heinous crime, or a rapist, or a murderer, and, he, and the judge said to him, how do you feel about what you've done? Well, judge, you see, I've been thinking about it, and I think I feel pretty bad about it. I think if you give me a second chance, I'm going to go out, and I'm going to do it all over again. And he says, oh, okay, well, as long as you feel bad about it, I guess that's fine. Go ahead out and go give it another try. I mean, there's something inside of each one of us, and I think it's because we're made in the image of God that just recognizes something is fundamentally wrong with that. There is an injustice that is monumental that can't be ignored in that. See, that's the problem, actually. That's the fundamental problem with the, the story of the prostitute. A little later on in John chapter 8, you have this, this woman who is literally caught in the act, it says, of, 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 of adultery. So she's, she's committing immorality with a married man, and she's dragged before Jesus. Of course, the man's left alone, but she's dragged before Jesus, and Jesus says, he who is, is here without sin, let them cast the first stone. Because that sin, according to Deuteronomy 22, demanded that the woman and the man be killed. But Jesus said, 
you know, let the righteous one here cast the first stones. And so everybody around is dropping their stones and walking away, beginning with the oldest guys first, because the oldest guys get it. And they walk away. But here's the thing. You've got to think about what's going on there. And, and, and this woman had sinned in a grievous way. There was a man involved as well who had sinned in a grievous way. And there were people that were profoundly affected by that whole event. He had a wife. The guy had a wife. He was married. And she heard about this whole thing. He probably had kids. And all of this would have landed on them in a decimating way. In other words, Jesus just saying, you're forgiven to the woman, that creates a problem. For, it solves her problems, but that creates other problems for other people. What I'm trying to say is this. The fundamental problem at the core of the cross was unpunished sin. It was unpunished sin. If God is holy and just and true and righteous, He must judge sin. He must do it. He would be less than God if He did not. He would violate His nature and His word if He did not do that. And so what God did is He found a way that he could uphold and vindicate his righteousness and justice and at the same time judge sin with the full outpouring of his wrath. And what he did, because he loves us, is that he came as the Son and embodied in a human, human body and offered himself in our place. He substituted Himself for us and bore the punishment, bore the penalty, bore the wrath that we rightly deserved because we were the ones that were sinners. Jesus was not. You know, if the name Maximilian Colby means anything to you or is unfamiliar to you, um, he was a, a priest who was imprisoned in a Nazi concentration camp somewhere around 1940 and was there for a while when in 1941, three prisoners escaped from that concentration camp. And so the commandant of the concentration camp chose 10 prisoners and chose to, to have them suffer the death of starvation as punishment for three people escaping. And so the commandant began to list off names, eight people, nine people, and ten people. And the tenth person, when his name was announced, the tenth person just screamed out, my wife, my children. And in that moment, a man named Maximilian Colby, who was a priest, stepped forward and said, I'll take his place. And the commandant allowed the swap so over the next 10 days, Colby led these other nine men who were starving to death in prayer and in praise. And for some reason, Colby remained like miraculously healthy. He was, he was just not changing at all. And eventually, even after all, everybody else had died, Colby was doing fine. And the guards became so exasperated that they gave him a lethal injection of poison and Colby went home to be with Jesus. 
Now, that's a remarkable story of substitution, and, and may God use it to inspire all of us in some important way. But let me point out to you some substantial differences that are worthy of note. First, the man that Colby replaced did not despise him. When Jesus took our place, we were enemies with God. We wanted to have nothing to do with God. We were opposed to God. We were hostile to God. We were at enmity with God. Also, Colby was a courageous man, but he was still a sinner. The one who took our place was the sinless, pure Lamb of God, had not committed one single sin in his holy life. In fact, if this story were aligned to be closer to what happened at the cross, it would have been the camp commandant who substituted himself. Actually, it would have been Hitler who drove in unexpectedly and got out of the car and substituted himself for the prisoner. In other words, the one from whom Colby needed to be saved would be the one to save him. Did you get that? The one from whom Colby needed to be saved would be the very one who saved him. In the gospel, what we have is the one from whom we needed to be saved, the God who had been violated because of our sin, who had to, had to pronounce judgment upon us, resolved that he would, he would take care of the problem by receiving the wrath and the judgment that we deserve by taking our place, by becoming the substitute. And that's exactly what happened. Because at the cross, God released His righteous wrath and His holy anger in an unstoppable fury upon the Son. And keep in mind, the object of that fury was not those, was not those who loved God. It was those who hated God. The object of that fury was the sinless Son of God. He was our substitute. He was our representative and our substitute. Which is why the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith says, quote, On the cross, He canceled sin, propitiated God, and by bearing the full penalty of our sins, Reconcile to God all those who believe. Brothers and sisters, may the words, Jesus died for our sins, may those words never rest lightly upon us. May they always have meaning and substance. He died for our sins. Okay, so that's the second sub-point. He substituted himself for us in, in a sinner's death. And lastly, he triumphed for us by rising again. See, the only way this plan would work, keep this in mind, the only way this plan would work, the only way Satan's hold upon us could be broken is for someone who was qualified to pay the wages of sin. The wages of sin were death. It had to be someone who was qualified to pay the wages of sin. Then, and only then, could we see if death would hold him. Then, and only then, would we see if death could imprison him. See, death held us because we deserve death. We deserve judgment. We were unrighteous. But enter Jesus. Enter the Word become flesh. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, 
so also in Christ shall all be made alive. See, what we have to see is that even in his resurrection, he's representing us. On the third day, he rose, signaling to earth and to heaven, to earth and to heaven, signaling this, that the plan worked, that it worked, that sin was vanquished, the enemy was conquered, that death had indeed been overcome by the blood of Jesus. And so what we have to understand is that his substitution was not only in life, not only in death, but in the resurrection as well. Because the empty tomb then sealed the plan, which meant that that perfect record of righteousness through, a, through obeying God's law in all things at all times, that perfect record of righteousness would be deposited in our account so that when God looked down, He would no longer see us in our follies, in our failures, in our sins, in our lies, in our lusts, but He would see the perfect righteousness of Christ dripping off of us, which would elicit His favor, which would elicit that sense of, of, of approval from God and blessing from God. That meant His death would cover our penalties. And it meant that his resurrection would conquer death for us and guarantee. And this is, where, this is what I want you to think about. In fact, this is, this is what I've been praying for. And I pray that the reality of this truth would sink home with all of us today. That his resurrection would guarantee a resurrection for you in the future. And you know what that means? That means we're going to make it. You're going to make it. Because there was his resurrection, and you are represented in him. You've got a resurrection coming too. And not a resurrection to death, but a resurrection to life. I don't know what kind of season you've been in right now. Maybe, maybe you're getting the crap beat out of you. You know, maybe you're experiencing doubts and you feel like you've sinned away your salvation if such a thing were possible. And, and, and maybe, maybe there is a need where you have to confess your sins to God and to other people even. And There's deep repentance that's necessary. I'm not denying any of that. All I'm saying is that the resurrection reminds even us sinners that, that sin doesn't win. Sin doesn't win. Suffering doesn't win. That area that you're thinking about right now, that thing that the Spirit of God is bringing up in your mind right now, that area doesn't win. Your pain doesn't win. That besetting sin that's dogging you doesn't win. And just let that sink in for a second. I mean, just imagine for a second a wealthy man came to you saying, hey, Here's the deal. If you become my child for five years, I'll give you a hundred million dollars and I'll, I'll put it, I'll deposit it in your bank account right now. Well, just imagine what life would look like right now if you knew you had a hundred million dollars in your bank account. Just imagine how, what financial problems might look like in the future because you've got all this money stashed away and it's going to be yours you don't have it completely yet, but it's there. It's bankrolled. It's coming to you. It just takes time. Just imagine how you might relate to the problems that you're encountering. Here's what I'm trying to say. That empty tomb means that we have a Father in heaven who's made a deposit 
on our behalf. It guarantees a future blessing. It guarantees a future of peace. And that future awaits everyone who has called upon the name of the Lord. And this is what I want for you this morning. I want that biblical vision of a stubborn Savior. Of a, of a Savior that loves you so much that He's not going to let you go. He's not going to let you die in your sin. He's not going to let that besetting sin that is dogging you and keeping you awake at night or convicting you, even that very thing that you think is going to take you down. He loves you so much that He will stubbornly go after you and win you and get you across the finish line. And that, that vision of a stubborn Savior is a biblical vision. And that's important to remember because what comes to your mind when you think about Jesus reveals how well we really know Him. Let's pray.